today on Ag News Daily. Those are the kind of things when you talk about uh, uh, really efficiency, effectiveness, and customer focus, I think we've moved the ball on that. Uh, We've tried to be uh, data-driven. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's another Ag News Daily podcast with Ashton Carr, joined by Delaney Howell. And Delaney, I've got to tell you, it's been a little bit of a crazy day for me. I had to go and get COVID tested again, but I am in the clear, so no COVID for me. Wait, you had to get tested again? I went and got tested again because I went to the doctor yesterday and they told me I had a viral infection, but I had a slight fever last night, so I wanted to be as precautious as I could be. Okay, well, I'm glad you didn't get it again. I think your chances of getting COVID a second time are pretty low, so I'm glad that didn't happen to you. I know. I was freaking out quite a bit. I won't even lie because I took my temperature and I haven't had a temperature all week, but I freaked out a little bit. But, you know, the doctor kind of said the same thing, that it would probably be a little bit hard for me to get COVID a second time, but we're in the clear. So that's good news. Very good news. And we're also uh, got some maybe good news here with a COVID deal. Um, The House has passed a new stopgap spending bill to keep the government funded and won't shut down. And it also has bought more time for negotiators to try and reach a deal on the new coronavirus relief package that we've talked a little bit about here on the podcast, Ashton, which would be about $908 billion. And a lot of that would be earmarked, or I should say 600 million earmarked for um, fishery and disaster relief, about 13 billion in total for agriculture, but a good chunk of that would also be um, for SNAP benefits as well. Well, Delaney, I want to talk about ethanol starting off for the news that I have here. A new report by Growth Energy shows that the impact of a nationwide shift to E15 could have a combating impact on climate change. Based on their analysis of data from EPA, USDA, and others, the authors estimate if the U.S. were to transition from E10 to E15 nationwide for 2001 and later model year vehicles, greenhouse gas emissions would decrease by more than 17 million tons per year, which is the equivalent of removing approximately 3.8 million vehicles from the road. Growth Energy also reported that more than 2,200 retail locations now offer E15, marketed as unleaded 88, and despite COVID-19 challenges, that number increased by 10% in 2020, plus 95% of vehicles on the road today are approved by EPA as E15 compatible. So it was very interesting to see this report. I didn't read through the whole thing, But I thought it was certainly interesting to hear more about that E10, E15 transition. And it's definitely a discussion that we're going to see here as we transition into a new administration, Ashton. And speaking of transitioning into our new administration, we saw President-elect Joe Biden has now officially announced who he will be tapping for his next U.S. trade representative, which will be... uh, woman by the name of Catherine Tai, who's a top trade lawyer for the House Ways and Means Committee and the former chief counsel on China trade enforcement at the office of the USTR during the Obama administration. So um, it is widely speculated that she was tapped because of her knowledge and experience dealing with China, since that's going to be one of the most pressing issues that 
Biden has to deal with heading into his presidency here. Um, but as we know, he has said that he is going to remain as, you know, remain in this phase one trade deal for the time being and isn't going to make any rash decisions. So I hope we really do see that uh, being followed through and that we don't see anything major happen right away when he steps into office. But they said the best strategy on, on China is basically one which gets every one of our, or at least what used to be our allies on the same page, which is a recent statement Biden made to the New York Times. And so he said it's going to be a major, it's going to be a major priority for me in the opening weeks of my presidency to try and get us back on the same page with our allies. Well, Delaney, speaking of China, I have some news concerning their ban on German pork. Germany is continuing to press China for a regionalization agreement on port in, pork imports. And that was stated by the Agriculture Ministry in Berlin. And China has put a ban on German pork earlier this fall because of African swine fever outbreaks in Germany. Since September 10th, 240 African swine fever cases have been confirmed in Germany, and all were in wild animals with pig farms not involved. So from my understanding, Germany is trying to come to an agreement with China to only put bans on those regions of the country that had been affected by African swine fever, not just a blanket ban on pork sales from the whole entire country. But as of yet, China has yet to say anything really in response. So it's definitely something that I'm keeping my eye out on, especially because I haven't seen anything about African swine fever in Germany for a while now, but there for a little bit there in September and October, we were covering those African swine fever cases pretty heavily. Yeah, we certainly were. And I believe they're up to about 225, 250 cases. But like we've said before, all um, in wild production, not anything commercial as of yet. So we'll keep an eye on that news story, won't we, Ashton? We certainly will. Well, let's see. Uh, I definitely want to talk about the WASD report, which was released earlier today. But Ashton, I wanted to see if you had any other news first. Yes, I do just have one other story that I wanted to talk about today, and it's more pork news. The National Pork Board says that there are growing export opportunities in Vietnam and the Philippines. A report that was funded by the Pork Checkoff and USDA's Foreign Agricultural Service shows that African swine fever has impacted both countries' pork industries and supply chains, promoting dominant growth in imported pork over the next decade. As the two countries recover from COVID-19 and African swine fever outbreaks, pork consumption and import demand will increase, according to that research. This projected increase is counter to other key markets where pork consumption is expected to shrink by 2030. And the projected growth is based on the rise in the middle classes and pork's popularity in Vietnamese and Filipino cuisine and culture. So definitely some Good news is we will continue to look for that opportunity for our U.S. pork farmers. Absolutely. Uh, and we had some neutral news, we'll say, for our U.S. corn and soybean farmers in today's WASD report, Ashton. What do you say we hop over and take a look at this thing? 
I'm excited, Delaney. Let's get into it. All right. Well, I think as we've talked about, it really wasn't a very exciting report, kind of a non-report, if you will. And the markets did react to it uh, short term. But again, I think it was nothing out of the ordinary. We really didn't see USDA touch too much as far as production is concerned. As far as things on the corn side of the balance sheet, Corn production, corn acreage, and ending stocks were all left unchanged domestically, and exports were relatively unchanged as well. Soybeans, however, saw domestic ending stocks lower just slightly to 175 million bushels down from the November report, which called for 190 million bushels. So again, not much of a decrease there, but we did see a little decrease in soybeans. And then global production, we did not see USDA change any of our global production numbers. I'm talking specifically here, South American numbers. Well, I should I should take that back. We didn't see them change Brazilian numbers. We did see them adjust, again, just very slightly, production for Argentinian numbers heading into 2020. We saw just slightly lower corn and soybean numbers there for Argentina, but not enough to make this thing really any sort of, you know, a letter to write home about, we'll say. Um, following the release of the port, we saw corn trade, you know, one to two cents lower. We saw soybeans really hard to find their footing today after the release of the report. You know, we were watching it live here and we saw soybeans shoot up about 10 cents higher before quickly pulling back to end lower on the day uh, after digesting that report news. So really, you know, I think as Matt talked about earlier this week, nothing too exciting, but we kind of already expected that. So, yeah, Delaney, I saw some folks talking about it on Twitter and a lot of folks were just saying that it was pretty neutral, like you said there before you got started on you know, going through the report. But I'm no analyst or anything like that. So I was at least excited to just hear what you had to say about the report. Absolutely. Well, I'm not the best analyst. I'm trying to learn, that's for sure. But uh, that's really big picture take on things today as we head in to talk about the markets. Ashton, what do you say? Let's do it. Well, as I mentioned, corn and soybeans finished lower on the day, but wheat had surprisingly good turnarounds here on this Thursday afternoon. Kicking things off here, however, in the March corn contract, down two and a half cents today to close at 421 and a quarter. The December down a penny and a quarter to close at 409 and a quarter. In the soybean pits, the January contract shedding five and three quarters cents to close at 1152 and three quarters. The March down four and three quarters to close at 1158 and three quarters. In the Chicago wheat pit, it's December today up 13 and a quarter cent to end at 590 and a quarter. The March down, excuse me, the March up 13 and a quarter as well. The close at 596 and a half. Hopping over to take a look at the livestock market screen across the cattle complex today as the February live cattle contract up 87 and a half cents to close at 111.85. The April up 92.5 to close at 115.97. And in feeder cattle, the January contract, 57.5 cents higher today to close at 137.60. The March added 45 cents to close at 139.25. Lean hogs lowered on the day as the February contract shed $1.17 to close at 65.10. The April 
losing 67 and a half cents to close at 69.07 and a half and rounding out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures January 23 cents higher to close the day at 16.33 the February up 35 to end the day at 17.26 Ashton without further ado why don't you fill us in on what we're talking about for today's interview Today, we are featuring part two of Sunny Purdue's interview at NAFB 20. So we all learned a tremendous amount. You guys learned a, a, a ton about uh, this process. Were there changes or mitigations put in place that will uh, take us through or avoid another situation like we were faced with back in March? I think so. We, we've gotten more resilience built into uh, that. I think, again, what you will probably see is uh, more automation, uh, certainly in processing. That's, uh, that's certainly true. Uh, more, more worker safety. Uh, you know, who could have anticipated a pandemic of this kind? I think uh, the Spanish flu of, you know, 2009 or 1918, 100 years ago, uh, this is just not something you prepare for. Many people uh, like to blame people in power or, or in authority and this kind of thing, but these were these were very different uh, times. I'm I think again, America, the United States, even though we've had unfortunate deaths and infections, I think uh, frankly the whole country. I'm just not talking about the government. America as a whole has shown a resilience to this uh, uh, this pandemic in an amazing way. I'm really proud. A farmers never stop. They never stopped planting. They never stopped harvesting. They never stopped there. They kept on doing what they needed to do because uh, when you think about essentiality, uh, mm-hmm. growers are pretty essential. For sure. And you kind of referenced school-aged children. Can you talk about how USDA, how you connected with those school-aged children? And now, you know, now more than ever before, that connection between you know, food and school children and farmers. Yeah, one of the things that uh, uh, we did, obviously, was to give uh, some flexibility. We heard a lot from our school nutrition professionals, uh, really regarding some of the rules they were under. Uh, it was a huge, uh, 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 awesome Rubik's Cube they had to match within the confines of their budget and the flexibility they were asked to do. The other thing that we, we realized that school children were feeding the garbage can. They weren't feeding themselves. Mm-hmm. And so if you're concerned about nutrition for kids – you got to also make that food palatable in a way that they will consume it. We've seen a, a wonderful uptick in uh, utilization, both in number of kids eating and participating in school meals, as well as uh, uh, the palatability of consuming that food uh, as well. Uh, you also know during the COVID, that was a crisis as well. Kids being sent home, many of them, that's the nutrition that they were depending on at school breakfasts and lunches. And I just want to Thank again our food nutrition people here at USDA. They did thousands of waivers there in order to get these school kids fed, not only during that time when they left school early in the spring, but through the summer and the fall and now through the end of next school year. This has been a tremendous effort in getting, uh, keeping these kids fed. Uh, it's amazing. It's astonishing, really, to realize how much America's school children depend on. Uh, this nutrition for their for their weekly daily nutrition needs. 
For sure. Let's go on to uh, reducing regulations under this administration. Uh, The Trump administration scored significant wins with farmers and and ag groups when it repealed the controversial wilderness rule. Do you believe the the rule will face challenges under this new administration? Well, I I can't predict what will happen. Obviously, it was a great victory for American agriculture. You know, it was the top issue from American Farm Bureau Federation. Many farm groups have come together to advocate it. Uh, I viewed it, frankly, as uh, overly restrictive in a confiscatory type of way. It would have limited uh, the ability of farmers uh, who are very compliant and very uh, uh, very willing to apply by environmental regulations, but it would limit their ability and then w- their ability to make a living in many ways. So I think the repeal of the waters of the U.S. or the or really the not repeal, but making it a, a much more uh, amenable type of uh, regulation that farmers can uh, comply with without losing their ability that way. So I don't think we uh, uh, farmers, I, I truly believe, are environmentalists. I think they want to do things. We're continually talking about water quality and nutrient runoff and doing things with our NRCS to, to better that. So I think we've left it better. What will happen in the future? There are other regulations there that uh, uh, and again, you got to think about E15. There was a huge cry in the in the corn growing region over year-round E15. Those things were accomplished, making it easier in that way to uh, for consumers to have access to uh, uh, ethanol fuel in a way that I believe uh, helps the environment as well as helps our agricultural producers. So much uh, to, to summarize in your time as secretary. Can you pick out what you're proudest of uh, during your role as secretary of Ad? Well, those are those are hard to do. I'm not a one focus kind of guy. What uh, what what I said when we came in, Rita, was we want to be the uh, the most efficient, the most effective, the most customer focused uh, agency in the federal government, and I believe we've strived to do that. I think if you ask farmers up and down the line. If we've been accessible, if we've been available, if we've been transparent, I believe we'd get a pretty good score on that. I think uh, I think many of them have indicated that anecdotally to us. Uh, we're, we're doing a Farmers.gov access. We just announced this week a Ask USDA. We want farmers to have connectivity rather than getting in this uh, vortex of death of IVRs and phones and things like that. You know, in your business, communication is important. We want to be able to communicate directly to farmers and have them feedback directly to us. So this uh, uh, bilateral feedback loop we've got with Farmers.gov and Ask USDA, I think will be a huge uh, uh, promotion going forward that will enable them to, to feel part of what's happening here, not just like takers, but participators in the process of decision making. So those are the kind of things when you talk about uh, uh, really efficiency, effectiveness, and customer focus, I think we've moved the ball on that. Uh, we've tried to be uh, data-driven, uh, science-based uh, uh, deciders, and I think, we've, uh, I think we've used science and data to do that. We've created some dashboards here in USDA that's amazing, used all the way from the Forest Service to FPAC to, uh, uh, to food science, food service, and uh, other things. So, We've got a platform here where people are able to uh, to make data-driven, facts-based decisions, scientific-based decisions, rather on idiot rather than ideology. Sometimes we use uh, 
Uh, we use uh, political science rather than a biological science to make decisions. We've given people, we've got our career people, the tools now they need to make data-driven, facts-based scientific decisions. Let's talk about the future. You spent a lot of time on the road. You crisscrossed the country countless times, and you had an opportunity to interact with young ag students, 4-Hers, FFAers. What did you take from that? Well, I take from it that I'm, I'm confident. I'm, I'm more confident of the future of agriculture than I ever have been. It's been an honor of a lifetime to be able to visit. Uh, you know, I'm from Georgia in one corner of the country. Uh, and a lifetime there, although I lived in Ohio and North Carolina for a short period of time. But uh, what I saw across the country, north, south, east, west, was uh, a heart and a spirit that embodied that American spirit that built this country. And that's what thrills me. I not only saw it in the, in the older farm generation, I saw it in the young people with a future of technology and, and, a, and an understanding of how uh, technology can make us go even further to feed this world hungry. The world is depending on the United States of America. When we see what's happening and proposed in Europe is the farm to fork and going backward rather than forward, it's the young people of America who are going to create uh, the, the methods to feed us, uh, whether uh, whatever method that is. Consumers will ultimately determine what it is uh, about what they want and how they want. I think the transparency that young people bring to the process. Our, my generation of farmers, we were just trained to stay behind the farm gate and just do a good job and not talk about it. We cannot no longer afford to do that. We've got to talk about what we're doing, how we're doing, how we're growing the food, what's in it, how, why it's nutritious and healthy, and those kind of things. So this younger generation is more tuned to obviously social media, but I think they're also better communicators than uh, my generation of farmers had been in that way. So I think the future's bright. I'm very hopeful. There's some amazing young people out there that are going to do some amazing things uh, uh, that we can't even think about now. You inspire us. You're a tremendous leader. And we talk about maybe who impacted you as a, a young person. Who were your mentors in life? Well, that's interesting to say. I I, I feel like I had the the, the Boyhood of a lifetime. I, I grew up in middle Georgia on a diversified row crop farm. My daddy farmed all of his life. My grandfather farmed all of his life. My mother was an English teacher for 40 something years there. So I got that, that uh, liberal arts training as well there with, uh, uh, I, that hanging participles were not allowed in my home. <laughs> but anyway, I think my dad and my mom were my, my structure. There was never a day in my life when I didn't realize that I was loved. You think the power of that in a child is so powerful to realize that. And then as, as we had a dairy farm as well, and then as I saw the veterinarian come out uh, to the dairy farm, I realized that a professional career was what I would like. And then uh, I, that, that I signed up for a, 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 a early commissioning program when I was in veterinary school because Vietnam was boiling. I wanted to do my duty because my friends were being drafted. I went to the Air Force, I practiced veterinary medicine, and then I realized uh, that farm upbringing had too much dirt under my fingernails and, and clay between my toes, so I went back into a career of agribusiness. But all along, there have been people who have been good to me and uh, so helpful, but it really began with my parents, and uh, I, I owe them uh, really everything. What didn't I ask you that you want to leave us with today? 
Well, again, uh, America's going to be in great hands. The resiliency of the American farmer, rancher, producer, uh, tree growers. Uh, this is a great country, and uh, everything is going to survive. We're going to survive. We're going to continue to lead the world in biotechnology and agricultural production, and the world is going to be better for it because of the American farmer and rancher. Ex-Secretary Sonny Perdue, our heartfelt thank you for your service and definitely for your time here today and, and throughout the last four years. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast heard on the Global Ag Network. There are similarities in the way a carburetor functions and the volatilization of crop protection products when sprayed. They both work through latent heat. Latent is defined as invisible. Latent heat is the energy absorbed by a substance during a phase change. Latent heat of vaporization is the amount of heat required for a phase change. Volatization is the movement of herbicide vapors. Volatization occurs when the herbicide residue changes phase through the latent heat of vaporization. The vapors can then be carried long distances by the wind, possibly damaging surrounding crops. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Please visit FarmMachineryDigest.com for more helpful hints and technical articles where steel and soil meet. Well, we get a big thank you. Well, I shouldn't be thanking Secretary Purdue because he probably doesn't listen to the podcast. But uh, thank you to the NAFB for putting on that great panel discussion or great discussion there with Secretary Purdue. Might be one of his last we hear from him really here as we head into 2021. You know, I was just thinking the same thing, Delaney. Uh, as we saw earlier today, it was confirmed that, you know, J- President-elect Joe Biden had picked Tom Vilsack to be the next Secretary of Agriculture, but I really hope that Sonny Purdue listens to the podcast and heard you thank him. I think that would be totally awesome. That would be awesome. It's going to be, I always think it's interesting too, you know, they kind of, well, Vilsack didn't. He definitely took a position that was in the limelight. It's going to be interesting though to see what Secretary Purdue does because, you know, pre- Trump administration, I'd never even heard of the guy, you know, maybe that was me being naive. I don't know, but uh, be interesting to see how he trans back in transitions back into normal agribusiness life. It certainly will be Delaney. And that might be something that we keep our eyes out on folks. And so if you want to tune in to see if it is something that we continue to talk about here on the podcast, you can do so at agnewsdaily.com and be sure to follow along with us on social media while you're at it at agnewsdaily on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. 